Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Matthew Dowd is one of the most interesting people I know. He's a fellow veteran of the political wars. Uh, Like me, he believes that the political system has meaning and devoted 35 years of his life to it, including two campaigns for George W. Bush, after which he had a very public and commented on uh, break. I had a chance to sit down with Matthew recently at the Institute of Politics, where he's a fellow this fall, and he had so many fascinating observations about his own journey, about politics, and the Pope. So here's that conversation. Matthew Dowd, my my fellow grizzled political warrior veteran. Uh, good to be with you. Great to be with you, Thank you, you for being at the IOP as well. Um, so we're in the middle of a presidential race. Are you getting, do you get, you know, hives? Do you get, <laughs> do you Do you feel like, man, I just want to be right in there running another presidential campaign? You were the uh, a lead strategist in two for George W. Bush. You've been involved in politics for a very long time. You, you get nostalgic at all at times like this? Uh, nostalgic is probably better way to describe it than 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 addiction. You know, as you know, that it's it took a little while to break through it because so much of my life was every campaign, every two years there was something, or every four years there was something, and it took a while to take step back from it. I do miss a couple aspects of it. Um, I miss the team camaraderie that is built around campaigns. It's unlike anything else that I've been involved in, and I've done a lot of consulting yeah. and a lot of others, but that team that you have for one common purpose, all believing in the yeah. same thing together, yeah. is an amazing thing. And I and also is is that it's an aspect that when I first got, you know, attracted to politics long, long ago was is was what could you do to improve the country or the world or your community and all that. And then once you do that, you then have to discover other ways, if that's what you want to do as your mission and calling in life, you have to discover other ways. But it was something that was basically for 35 years what I thought I was going to do as my calling which in the in the campaign. I totally uh, get what you're saying about the camaraderie. You know, I, I've spent my life in newsrooms and campaigns. One of the reasons I started the Institute of Politics was I wanted to build another team and I want to be surrounded by idealistic young people. So that's how I've uh, filled in that gap. So you mentioned 35 years in politics. Talk a little bit about how you got into it and how you were, why you were attracted to. You grew up in Detroit. I grew up in Detroit and in a family that that were, were talked about politics. I have 10 brothers and sisters, so an Irish Catholic, Catholic family. Catholic, I would say. Huh? Irish Catholic yes. family in Detroit. 
Um, yeah, I was, you know, there were seven boys uh, in the family. And so in any Irish Catholic... That sounds like a lot of politics right there. <laughs> it is. I learned actually the art of building coalitions in the <laughs> middle of 11 ki- children. I was supposed to be actually the priest. It was when in many Irish Catholic families, if there's a lot of boys, somebody's supposed to be the priest. And I think my mom had tagged me. That didn't work out well because I sort of was interested in girls. <laughs> um, and it, the church wasn't as progressive then um, as it may be getting today. But I actually got attracted to politics in the summer of the Watergate hearings when I was 12 years old. And I was always interested in it and watched it. But that, watching the hearings, we went up to summer vacation up on northern Lake Michigan. And I remember during the Watergate hearings, watching them while everybody else was playing on the beach and doing all the things they do and just being completely entranced by it. And from that moment on of watching the Watergate hearings, just the whole idea that we were having a president, his cabinet was being questioned by the Congress, the the media actually had exposed it, journalism had been a huge part of that. The whole thing, the whole meetings of all of those powerful players unfolding in the American public was such a an interesting thing to me. From that moment on, I decided I wanted to be in politics. And from then on, I, I went and volunteered on campaigns, and then I majored. What in, campaigns did you volunteer? There was a congressman in in, in Michigan named Broomfield, uh, who was a Republican uh, conservative congressman in uh, Michigan, outside of northern Detroit. I volunteered on his campaign. And then I volunteered when I went to school in St. Louis— uh, Governor Teasdale, uh, who's a Democrat, I, it's like many people, they switch allegiances when they leave when they leave their family. Because your family was Republican? My family was Republican. Uh-huh. Um, more populist, actually, because they didn't come, they weren't of wealth, and they had no... We had, now, Michigan had, you know, uh, 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 George Romney uh, during the Yeah, uh, I, actually the caddied, I actually caddied at the country club George Romney played at. It's interesting. He played at Bloomfield Hills Country Club. I caddied there, and they... Funny story is we they used to call him the ghost. George Romney was called the ghost because George Romney would go off without a caddy before sunrise with only six clubs. He'd only carry six clubs. And they called him the ghost because no one would see him. And then the only thing they would see was his footprints in the dew. So they <laughs> called George Romney the ghost and I caddied there. So I, you know, I had some... But he was a, you know, he, he, was, he a, was kind of a progressive. Very much a progressive. He came from as head of AMC. Right. Um, and he was... a Big time. Uh, you know, he'd be a liberal Republican today. Probably couldn't survive. Probably couldn't yes, do well. As I often say, if you want to see a liberal Republican, go down to the Field Museum. And they have a few <laughs> yes, on display. Smithsonian's. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that's how I, you know, and then I worked for Dick Gephardt is, uh, in my se- at senior college. And, and then I went up. To work- because you were in St. Louis. And I was in St. Louis. And Dick Gephardt was a, uh, a Catholic, uh, relatively at the time conservative Catholic, debating. I remember sitting in his office as a... It was an intern slash semi-paid, and he was debating at the time when I was driving around his district with him whether or not he wanted to stay the years and become speaker or run for president. And obviously, he decided to run for president. Yeah, uh, and almost and almost succeeded. Did you work for him in that in that race? Uh, no, I went down. I, I ended up going down to Austin uh, to graduate school, then worked on some elections in Austin and in Texas, and uh, that was '88. I think the first yeah. race he had. Yeah, yeah. I was um, on the other side. I was with Paul Simon in that race. Yeah, you, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah. And so I was still supportive of him, liked him. I actually, there was a meeting I actually had with Joe Biden back in 1987 and he was running. He came to Austin. I was actually, um, here's a 26-year-old um, who had done some campaigns. And I actually thought Joe Biden had such a a, a way with a crowd, actually. I just noted it by by that. But in the end, he, he, he ended up dropping out for a variety of reasons. So 
So um, Gephardt, back in the day when you were there, you mentioned he was a conservative. He was, he was pro-life. He was exactly. Pro, he was a pro-life, uh, pro-trade, actually, at the right. time as a congressman. And he ended up running for president as a as a pro-choice, anti-trade candidate. Yes. So uh, what is what did that tell you? I, and, and I'm not condemning Gephardt, who I think mm. actually— I, th- I always thought if John Kerry had put Gephardt on the ticket in 2004, he might have beaten you guys in that race. I think uh, Gephardt would have been an asset to him and would have been good in that debate with, with Dick Cheney. But— uh, what does it say about politics? You know, I I I, I said this to uh, uh, Bernie Sanders the other day when he was around, and we did one of these discussions that uh, Barney Frank said the only candidate he's ever agreed with a hundred percent was himself the first time he ran. <laughs> uh, so what- I, I have no see. So I here's my approach on and it's on politics and basically my approach on life, which is is that. There's, I don't believe in stagnation. I don't believe in a stagnant position on anything. I, be, I believe you have to be authentic and genuine. I grew up in a Republican family, be, became Democratic in college, and did Democratic campaigns for years and years, and then got temporarily out of it. And then George W. Bush, who was then governor, and I had worked for the lieutenant governor who was a Democrat, I liked him, liked him personally, and then did basically two Republicans races and then ended up becoming an independent in the last seven or eight So you got all your bases covered. Yeah, well, I get attacked from... Either way, I get attacked on on this from the Democrats or the Republicans on this. I I actually think we should allow... We should be better at allowing people to evolve. I mean, whether somebody all of a sudden evolves completely for political expediency, we can make that judgment. But I think it's, it's... We're a much better, more compassionate society, both personally letting people change and evolve and become... Who, they're, who they want to be or they're meant to be or whatever their intention is. And I think we should do a better job of that in politics and not necessarily criticize people for adjustments or changes in their positions. I think that's how the world works. And you should be able to let people move to different positions and not think it's some problem that of authenticity. Well, but is it sometimes a problem of authenticity? Yes. You know, like I'm sure, how many campaigns did you do? Probably 100. Yeah, and I've done 150. And, you know, there's... You you run across candidates. You always want your candidate. You always hope your candidate is who you want them to be. Yeah. Sometimes they're not. Yes, and they uh, and there are candidates who come who really want you. Now you were close to the polling, mm-hmm. who want you to tell them what they need to be to win. They want the secret sauce, and sometimes they're too willing to be what. The numbers suggest they should be. So it is an issue of authenticity yeah. sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, it? No, I think there is. I think there is issues. And I think that's one of polling is actually a perfect example of this. I, I think most campaigns and most candidates, as you know, David, the best use of it is not to find out your position, but find out the best way to talk about exactly. your position, right? And find out what are the veins in the public that allow you as an authentic camp candidate to succeed. That's the best use of it. The worst use of it, the nefarious use of it, is to poll on an issue and then change because the poll said you should you should be this position on this this issue. Ninety nine times out of a hundred, if a campaign does that, it's it's usually bad for the campaign. That a switch merely for for the wind vane uh, the result is usually a bad result for the campaign. There are ones like that. I you know I went to work. George W. Bush is a perfect example. I went to work for George W. Bush. In 99, after having served for the Democratic lieutenant governor as his advisor, with the idea that we were going to go to Washington 
And as a former as a former Democrat at that point, we were going to change Washington, make unify Washington, get past the polarization, get past the divisiveness, reach across the aisle, do all those sorts of things. It ended up not turning out that way for many different reasons. I, I my guy had his own challenges in that regard yeah. as well. And I think there is an inf- there's a there's an infrastructural structural problem in Washington that doesn't allow it. But for for me, and I like George W. Bush personally, I don't think for me that we tried hard enough, that we put a big enough stake in the ground and caused, tried to cause people to rally around it. I think we did certain things, but we didn't do enough. Um, I thought there was much more symbolic actions that George W. Bush could have done. You can argue over what are all the reasons for that. My guess is, is when I look back at it, one of the first things that I noted that took us off, which I only noted in aftermath, was the pick of Dick Cheney as vice president. I want to ask you about that. That, that to me, when you look back on it, was the beginning of the, the, the loss of George W. Bush, the governor. Were you involved in that choice? I wasn't involved in the choice. I gave uh, suggestions. I gave suggestions on who I thought it should be. And the two that I thought it should be was one, one for political purposes and one for, for who I believed in. One was Danforth, Senator Danforth of Missouri, because I thought he would send a message that we want to be a different kind of party. He's a very thoughtful person. He's a pastor, very spiritual person, really embraces the idea of governance in, in the model that I think we want uh, from Missouri. That was the sort of spiritual or sort of thoughtful pick. The other one I thought we should have considered because at that time in, in when we were looking at this in ni- late 99, 2000, I thought Florida was going to be the, the – Florida a year out was going to be the decisive state in the election. And so You're I thought – right about that. So I thought Connie Mack. I thought a pick uh, who was a popular – uh, politician in Florida would been would have helped us carry Florida. In the end, we probably would have been benefited with either one of those, but Dick Cheney ended up on the ticket. Could have helped you in Pennsylvania, too. His grandfather managed the uh, Philadelphia yeah. A's, That's right? true. That's so, true. Uh, uh, but how, how did that happen? Why did that happen? Why did Dick Cheney, Cheney get yeah. picked? Well, I mean, I learned actually a lot reading some of the books about it. Uh, some of, most of us in the campaign had no idea how it was all getting done. Even people at a high level of the campaign didn't really know. It was very, it was kept very tight. It was kept very close circled. Um, you know, I, I was unaware that Cheney was simultaneously trying to help himself, as you learn from some of the books, and deciding who was, who was he going to vet on the other candidates. I don't know if Cheney, in the end, started out the beginning saying, I want to be vice president. He certainly didn't push back, in my view, hard enough uh, that it, it would have stopped it from happening. There was a sense on the outside that Cheney was like um, uh, Professor Henry Higgins to George W. Bush's Eliza Doolittle, that he was being sent there uh, you know, by the Bush family, essentially, to tend to uh, George W. make sure that he could fend with all the forces in Washington. Is there an element of truth to that, you think? I, I don't think so. Every encounter that I've had with both of them and then uh, watching them is George W. Bush 
made the decision, makes the decisions. And it's, it's, I think it's way too easy for people to say, even on the mistakes that he made, to say, well, George W. Bush wouldn't have made the mistakes but for Dick Cheney. George W. Bush was the deciding factor. And George W. Bush was a very strong, it wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to learn from this and somebody's going to tutor me and Professor Cheney's going to tell me what to do and all of that. He had a, he had a outsized influence. That's definitely true from what I could tell. But he wasn't pulling, he wasn't a puppet master pulling the strings. George W. Bush ultimately made the decisions. I should say parenthetically that uh, my only encounters with George W. Bush were after, uh, he, in the last months of his administration when we were in transition, and uh, he could not have been better to us. And to, he was very kind to me personally. He couldn't have been better to us. It doesn't change my views of some of the decisions that were made, but it, it helped enlighten me about people's uh, attitudes about him because you talk to people you and I both know who were clo- are close to him, were close to him, and they're effusive about him as a person. Yeah, I I feel the same way about him, and and even though I had that, as you know, that fair, very public break on the front of the New York Times with the, yeah, I want to talk to you about that a- a- after that. I I really like the guy, and I have to say, for the rest of my life, he gave me an opportunity in my life. Um, by asking me to work on his campaign, a presidential campaign, that I may not otherwise have had. So where I am today and what I've learned and what, where I've gotten in my life, I, give, I have to give some due to him because, you know, I, he was the horse and he asked some of us to be around him, and, and that's a huge opportunity. And yet in 2007, you had this big, mm-hmm. very public rupture with him. You had been really his, his kind of, his polling savant and for for years and years and years you went through two elections uh with him and then you did what in our business is very unusual which is you went public and you were quite critical of him um how did you come to that decision and 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 what kind of reaction did you get from from folks around i assume you didn't hear from him personally on this no no that no i didn't hear from george w bush in the aftermath of that I gave it a lot of thought. I had begun after the 2004 reelect, which, as you know, I was the chief strategist on. And then I went back to Austin after that and then started spending a lot of time thinking about where we were. And I had a belief, as I said, that I thought we were going to go to Washington and change the tenor and change the tone and bring people together. That ended up not happening. And so in the course of, of my sort of thoughtfulness on this, I decided, one, it didn't turn out the way we thought. I kept thinking it was going to change, thinking it was going to change, and it didn't. And then because I was such a public advocate, I'd been on television, you know, in the 2000 campaign and in the 2004 campaign advocating, I thought I owed it. I couldn't just disappear um, because I was such a public voice on it. it, When did you stop actually working for... uh for President Bush, I worked for the in the Republican National Committee um, partly into 2006, mm-hmm. and I had that's when I'd done Arnold Schwarzenegger's reelect. And so, about a year out from the break, eight months out from the break, I stopped working at all for any. any Did you Republican. tell them you were not going to work for them? Um, yeah, or- I told them. I told uh, uh, various uh, people in that, and I communicated a lot of my. Uh, dissatisfaction in the course of this along the way in the kind of in the year and a half or so leading up to this uh which others in the in the administration would testify to but i sort of i had to answer you have to answer the question of are you loyal to a person or are you loyal to what you believe 
is the truth? And that's a, you know, it's a tough question in any moment you have in your life. And I think I ultimately said the truth was that it didn't turn out the way we said it was. And I felt like that my loyalty to that was deeper, to that truth was deeper than that to the person. I did it in a way, I didn't write a book about it. You know, I didn't, it didn't make money off of it. I did one interview. I mean, I, I did two, should say did two interviews. I did an interview with the New York Times, which it came out of. And then I did a short NPR interview in the aftermath. I turned down every other interview, turned down every other thing, turned down every other opportunity that people said I could make money off of it and how Bush broke my heart and all of that kind of stuff because I thought I'm going to speak my piece and then I'm done. And that's what I did. But I guess the, the cynical question is why did it take so long to come to this realization? <laughs> and before – didn't you, you were – you ran. You you were a prominent figure in the re-elect. Yes. Uh, were these things not evident to you before the re-elect? That's a great great question, and and I always I always like to talk about it in kins of it. Any relationship you have, as you know, with a candidate at that level is very deep and is like a relationship, right? Yeah. And you're willing, in the course of a relationship. Um, to sort of say, no, they kicked the dog. They didn't really mean to. They had a bad day at work. Or no, they came home, you know, drunk. Um, they had a rough, you know, their their rough problem in their family. And you do that a number of times and do that a number of times and do that a number of times. And then you finally, because you say, no, it'll change six months. It's, it'll be better. It'll be better. That's not really a person. And then at some point you say, maybe this person isn't the person I thought they were. Or maybe what they said they were going to do wasn't going to do. And that's what happened to me. I thought, I had these questions in, in my mind before actually the reelect, but I thought we get through the reelect as many times as you can, and then we can really do the things that we yeah. say we're going to do in the aftermath of the reelect. That didn't happen. I gave it t- some time, and I thought, well, we got through the reelect. I thought we were going to do all these things that we said we were going to do. We didn't do them. And at that point, I, I felt the need to say something. How did you feel? Uh, now, there's one big sort of elephant in the room, no pun intended here, uh, which was the war. Um, and you were personally impacted by the war. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Talk about what your thoughts were on the war at the beginning and how those may have evolved, and talk about about your son. Sure. So uh, like most Americans, um, you, you, you believe and you want to trust the national security team, and, and you all of the evidence that was being presented and all of the things that were being said about Saddam Hussein, obviously, me, like most other Americans, believe that we needed to go into Afghanistan and deal with the, the most immediate threat there. And then, of course, Iraq uh, felt um, disconnected from it. But then all of this evidence and all of this uh, stuff is presented by our leaders that we trust, saying that there was a, you know, a, a, a huge problem with weapons of mass destruction, which, of course, turns out to be totally not true in the aftermath of it. I would believed that. I had questions about it. I've always had questions about war from a Catholic perspective, about what, what's whether or not war really achieves any good. I mean, there's a whole theory, obviously, of a good of a just war. But I had questions about the idea of war. But I sort of said that Saddam is a dangerous person with weapons of mass destruction. So we should do something about it. My son on his own, decided to enlist while I was in the midst of the... How many kids you have? I have four. Mm-hmm. Three boys and a and girl. And which, which one, in what order? The oldest, Daniel, mm-hmm. was the oldest. And he had done, he finished a year of school in Texas. He was finished with his freshman year. Called me up in the summer while I was in Washington working on the reelect in 2004 and said, I've decided to enlist. 
and I'm going to join as a um, in the army as an uh, intelligence specialist, and they're going to send me to learn Arabic in California at the Defense Language Institute, and so I have a few months. So he came up actually and worked for me on the reelect in 2004, and I remember like it was yesterday when he when I had to drop him off in Arlington to take the bus to go to boot camp. This was a week before election day in 2004, and drop him off, 20 year old or 20 year old kid at the time, and then drove back to the campaign thinking that I had just dropped my son off and I was about to reelect the person that was going to send him to war, right? That is a tough, that is a tough thing. It's a tough thing for any parent to be in. And I think that moment and those moments got me to really think about the whole war perspective. I have a big belief that people need to have a stake. We need to have politicians have more and need to have more of a stake in the ground when they make these yeah, decisions. Yeah, I want to ask you a question about that because very few members of Congress have kids who are going to go – like 1% of the country is fighting yeah, these, it's, these wars. Uh, so there's a big disconnect between the decision, which is more – you know, it's, it's detached – uh, we, we too experience. easily, we too easily make. I think there's Washington makes these decisions to go to war way too easily because we're in a we have a volunteer army, as you know. And you think we shouldn't? Do you think I, I actually think we should have a, some level of service that everybody has to do, whether it's uh, military service or some level of national service, so that I think every single person, whether you're the daughter, son, or daughter of a billionaire, or the son or daughter of somebody that's on welfare, every single person ought to have some stake in the country. I believe that. And I think it would change the way decisions are made by both presidents and Congress in the midst of it. It affected me. He said he did two tours in Iraq. Um, he could, thank God he came back uh, all fine. Um, did it change him? Um, it, it's, 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 it didn't change his heart, which was a blessing because he's a really good kid. It changed his perspective on – he used to be a big believer that that he – that the military was somehow efficient, more efficient than the rest of government. He came back with the idea that the military is just in a, just as inefficient as the rest of government. The idea he came back with the, the idea that he said that we're going to cut all these other programs in government, but not cut the military because it, this, that it, he says that he thinks that it's somehow it's not it's effective. And he said it's just as inefficient as any other program people want to cut. So it it affected him that he's actually like a libertarian. He's pretty much a libertarian these days, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, during the 2004 campaign, obviously Iraq was the central issue in the campaign. You're advising the president mm-hmm. on how to parry the issue of Iraq mm-hmm. based on the research you're doing yeah. while you're wrestling with this very difficult mm-hmm. situation of your son going off uh, to war. How how hard was that? And Talk a little bit about the the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth thing. I mean, Kerry was really being pummeled at that time, in part over. Uh... Sure. So, I, I my perspective on that, as you know, the Swift Boat Veteran stuff was disconnected from the campaign. It was being done by whatever the third party or whatever that we had no say over. I was actually opposed to it. I thought it was distracting us from the the real issues. I thought that it was raising a – it didn't, in my view, when I looked at all the polling, interestingly enough, didn't have hardly any effect on the race at all. I thought it distracted us. It was a tough time, and it was a tough time, I think, for many of us in the course of this, me personally in this. Um, but I think it was very tough, and obviously we learned in the aftermath that the, it was a national security election, and um, I – you know – 
I had to go through that process and come out the other side, and I came out the other side much more opposed to war than I went into it. What did you learn about politics that uh, in that experience? What did you learn about the two? I mean, I'm always struck by the tools we have, and um, you know, there there are times in my life when I was doing campaigns when I was kind of overcome by the cynicism that we sometimes surf in politics. Um, what kind of reflection have you done about that? Well, that the broad, bigger broadly, I, I understand the cynicism. I'm at cynicism that people have and all of that. I've actually, you know, I've seen things that I wouldn't like to, to see. I've seen behaviors of certain candidates that I think were bad, but I'm actually a huge believer in the process of politics. I think most everybody involved has are well-intentioned on both sides of the aisle. They believe in the idea that they can improve America, improve their community. I did come away with a bigger, bigger change, which is, is you get up to this height of a president, a president in a presidential campaign, and it's heady, and you think you're going to fundamentally change things. And what you realize is the changes that you're going to be able to make are really small, and it's really hard. And i have come to the belief that the most power that exists in politics exists in the as local level as you possibly can go. That somebody that's a city councilman or a mayor or a state of a state official actually has more power to move change than in many ways a president does. And though it's the top of our profession to get there, I've come away with the idea that the power that really we have here in America is really resides as locally as it possibly can. That's fundamentally the power. So I've gone all the way up the ladder, and I've learned that basically when you go back to start to, to the beginning of this, the real manifestation of real politics and political power happens locally. And yet the irony is, you know, I, I learned this when, uh, for example, the, the Gulf leak happened. You know, the very same people who were saying, uh, we got to get the government out of everyone's business. The first thing people say when something like that happens is, where's the government? Where's the president? Why hasn't he solved it? As if the president could put on a wetsuit and dive a, a mile down and plug the leak up uh, himself. And uh, so we've built the presidency up to uh, these uh, prodigious uh, proportions in people's minds. Yeah, and I think, and I think you and I have played a part in that. Obviously, I mean, we have played a part in that because it's not just the media, and it's not we've the why where the why the voters believe that is it, they didn't like start believing that they believe that because they were told that by candidates like I can solve your problem, I can fix this for you, I can do this for you. Don't worry about it. And I think that's actually not served us well. I think it would serve us much better if we were more realistic about it. And we told them, instead of promising that we're going to fix all their problems and everybody's going to have a job and all this is going to go well and all this, don't worry about it, it always doesn't turn out that way. I, I think that's we've, – we've not served, I think, that well by not being more realistic and more more real in what we can really get done as a president. Yeah, no, yeah but I, although I think what we have to sort out is what – what presidents can do and what presidents can't do. I always talk about Lincoln and in the midst of the Civil War, building the uh, Transcontinental Railroad or laying the foundation for it, creating the National Science Foundation, land-grant colleges, you know, infrastructure, innovation, education, you know, three of the real pillars of growth that we still uh, see as pillars of growth today. What an incredible visionary guy he was to do that. And nobody else was going to do that. Government had to do that. So there are things that we have to do together. I don't disagree with you on the local 
a front, you know, I, I was, I, I spent a whole, and I ran across you during these years, a whole bunch of my life doing mayor's races, because to me, they were the most vital races you could do, because these guys were dealing, and gals were dealing with quality of life issues that absolutely affected everybody they served. And they could make changes and they could make improvements that you could see and touch and feel much harder at a at a presidential level. So Yeah, I, I agree I agree with you completely. I mean I'm a huge advocate of infrastructure spending and in the spending by the federal government in ways that actually move and change things as opposed to way too many promises on too many things. I think the federal government, the government ought to be involved in many different things. And I think the power of a president is the power of convening and persuasion. That's a huge power that they have to bring people together and to try to solve this, not necessarily by a administrative action, but a, a convening power and a, and a oratory power that a president has. But I think we've made We've made we've used the federal government and the presidency as way too much of a band aid on every single ill of the country. We can just slap some pixie dust of the president on it, and it'll fix it. And I don't think that's been I don't think that's benefited the country. I uh, uh, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you about where the country is right now. But before, just one more thing on the on these uh, on the issue of the process. I agree with you about politics. Obviously, I wrote a book called Believer. <laughs> I run an institute of politics to encourage young people to get into politics. So I, I, I believe that as messy and as difficult as it is, it's 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 a worthy calling. Uh, but I've also, you know, I guess I'm a little less um, a little less charitable to those who serve because I think that there is this large group of people who run for office because they want to be something. And then there's this smaller, more admirable group that run for office because they want to do something. And for those who run for office because they want to be something, uh, the politics we have today where you have these where your threat is almost always in a primary election mm. and not in a general forces you to react to the most strident voices in your own party. And uh, so um, you know, I would say there's a reason profiles encourage such a slim volume. Most people don't. They want to do good things. I'm sure most of them want to do good things. But if it means doing good things, if doing good things means giving up their jobs, then they're not so keen on it. And that's what makes uh, governing so difficult. Yeah, today. and I think this unfolds most negatively at the presidential level, interestingly enough, because I think the appeals that have to be made, I agree with you completely. I believe... What that, about Congress? Yeah, well, and Congress. But I think that part of it has become an, an, an infrastructure party problem that we have and a media, and there's a media-driven where everybody yeah, gets siloed mm-hmm. in their media mm-hmm. and everybody's unwilling to go outside of the media that only reinforces what they already believe and each side can do that and then there's no opportunity for conversation if each side has their own set of facts. That's unfortunately where we've been i think that we're on the cusp of a real revolution or a real uh, disruption in our politics where there is going to be a new party emerge somewhere whether it's another party or a party that actually falls and that like has happened in the history of the united states where there's one party just completely changes and even though they have the same name they're a different party we're on the cusp of that because i don't think the american public is going to tolerate for much longer the inability President Obama and President Bush are two presidents that have served, that will have served the last 16 years, both basically with with a fundamental, the same fundamental goal, which was, is how do we get past all this divisiveness and this bickering and this stuff in politics? And both are coming away with having been incredibly frustrated and not able to do much about it. To me, the only way that fundamentally changes is if the party, 
structure changes and whether it's an emergence of an independent party, which I think is not going to happen at the presidential level, it will happen at the local level, or one of the parties fundamentally changes, probably has to be the Republican Party at this point. The uh, I should say uh, that um, while I do agree with you that progress is hard fought and so on, there are certain things, you know, the health reform was a big thing. It wasn't a small thing. So there are opportunities. Now, what made that possible was for a brief moment, there were large majorities of one party in the Congress. We're not likely uh, to see that again. So. And except the problem with it being passed, as you know, by fully by almost one party is the ex- because we're divided now in a country that 45% hates whatever the other 45% is for, it is our country does well when we have 70% issues and 70% solutions, it does well. It doesn't do well when we have 47% solutions. And I think that's my only thing. And obviously, I think the healthcare reform has done a lot of good along the country. My only problem is that it's, it's, it was, it's dropped in and it, it didn't have the ability of being... So the being... question, if you're president of the United mm-hmm. States, I, I mm-hmm. agree with you. But the question is, if you're president and you have the opportunity to do something or not do something, do you not do something? That, that's a, it's a legitimate question. Do you not do health reform because you can't get any of the other party to, uh, to join with you in doing it? I mean, it's a very difficult question because... There are millions of people who don't have health care. The system's imploding. Um, you know, I, I remember these discussions, you know. I think, I think at some point there, we need to really address this whole issue that we've been talking about, which is we have to change the means of governing. The means of governing is broken. The, how we govern, the only way you can get anything done now is, is either side has to have such fundamental majorities and the presidency in order to get something done. And so to me, our means of governing is broken. And I think... It, 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 like the Pope, actually, a series of symbolic actions. We have to some. We have to arrive at leaders that are willing to take off the red shoes, right? Take off that which represent a certain symbolism, and actually say that we're funda- doing it fundamentally differently. I don't think we've had leaders that have done that fully yet. Yeah. Again, I think it, I. There, it's a it's a difficult thing because you have the choice between um, trying to force that. Uh, with a lot of resistance because of the structural issues or get stuff done. And uh, so that's a constant tug and pull. You mentioned the Pope. You, in your role at ABC, your commentator at ABC, you got to cover the Pope's visit. You are, uh, as you mentioned, you, you come from a Catholic family. Um, how meaningful was that? And what, what, what were your observations of him when he was here? Well, I was a, it, it's been a great, another great blessing and opportunity and gift to be able to do what I do and then intersect in that moment, the, that week where he was in uh, New York and Washington and Philadelphia as a Catholic and, and a Catholic who still attends Mass regularly, who also disagrees with a lot of what the Catholic Church has said and done over the years. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of the Pope because I think the Pope, he's, it, 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 people don't fully understand. They say, well, the progressive people say, wow, why hasn't he done these things on being, have allowed married priests or female priests or on, on, on contraception? It's moving a glacier. And this is an institution that has been fundamentally very hard to change. But even in the course of the two years that he's been Pope, he's really changed the nature of how people view it. He's actually the first Pope in my lifetime and there's been Paul the Sixth and John uh, Paul John the Twenty Third, Paul the Sixth, John Paul, and uh, this Pope. 
that has actually been a pope that has lived the Gospels. And it's he, he, he's most interested in the poor. He's most interested in the lost. He's most interested in, in the downtrodden. And I think watching that happen and just watching what he's done and who he's met with and how he's done that, I think is an incredible thing, an incredible lesson. He's it, The interesting thing to me about the pope, and I've read four or five in the course of this biographies of him, he he is a fascinating study and somebody that you would find incredibly holy, but he's very politically strategic. These things he does aren't just he doesn't doesn't yeah. does dream them up. And I want to ask you about that from the standpoint of a market or someone who's been in this business. Is he is he rebranding the church in a way that would um, that will bring back people to the church? I I think that's a great question, David. And this is my theory. I think that he is leading. By his disruption, his dis- disruptive nature of that, he's actually not going to cause, he's causing the end of the church as we know it, the hierarchical church that has lasted for 1,400 years, 1,300 years. He is actually bringing to an end by what he's doing. He's pushing power out to bishops. He's pushing power out to priests. He's actually saying that our job is not to do all, make all these other decisions. It's to sort of serve the poor. And if you're not serving the poor, then you should get out. Um, of the church. You shouldn't even have tax status. He basically he said that in the course of the last two weeks, uh, the tax status that is provided to certain Catholic charities. So I actually think he is not going to cause, in my view, more people to go to the into the pews or more money to be given to the church as it exists now. He's going to be cause, he's going to be the, his cause is going to be a reformed church that operates very differently in his aftermath. Let me ask you a question about his message uh, in the country and where we are today. Um, he's talked a lot about inequality. We live in a country where uh, peop- uh, the ninety uh, percent of the people haven't had a, a raise effectively in twenty-two years. Median income is the same as it was in nineteen ninety-nine. Seems to me this is what's coursing through our politics. We have this belief that America is a place we all talk about it, where if you work hard, you can get ahead. Um, that seems less true to people today. Uh, is is isn't is it your sense that the, I mean I think this is what's driving politics right now. Oh, it's I think these two the the, the Pope's visit is a fascinating thing. The Pope's visit and what's happening in politics have come to a a, a great focal point simultaneously. Not only because this great in, income inequality exists that we have to figure out a way to deal with it. Primarily because it drives people to no longer want to participate in the system. If they don't think, if Americans who for years and years and years thought they, if they worked hard, they could get ahead and they had a shot, if they no longer think that, which and now a large number of Americans no longer think that, that's a real problem for our system if we no longer believe that capitalism works in a fundamental way for their benefit, for the majority's benefit. That's a problem. And I think the Pope has spoken to that. I think a number of politicians have spoken to that. But the Pope has spoken to that as a spiritual leader that actually is embraced by many people. I think the other thing the Pope's arrival in the midst of this has done is, is that our, our politics has become so coarse and so vitriolic and so mean-spirited, and we watched it unfold in this uh, in the GOP race, really, fundamentally. Here's a pope that comes and has things to say, but he does it in such a kind, compassionate, gentle way, with strength. And I think many people think you can't be kind and cap- compassionate and gentle and be viewed as strong, as some Republican candidates have tried to show the opposite of. I think both of those things, dealing with the income inequality problem and the fact that we have way more poor and way more people in the lower middle class than we ever had, and their inability to feel they can climb the ladder, combined with a politics that has become so mean that because people think that's the only way to show your strength. 
Matthew, I uh, could talk to you for hours, and I probably will when, the, when we step away from here, but I really appreciate you, uh, you being here and being so open. Uh, and it's fun to be with someone who's walked the same road uh, uh, because uh, it's, a, it's an incredible journey. It's really great to be here with David, and it's great you're doing what you're doing here in Chicago. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.